The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, I have the privilege of introducing you to a friend of mine today, a guy named Dr. Nathan Tarr. He is the the D-Men director at Phoenix Seminary, and I have to say that slowly because when I say it into my phone, Siri thinks I'm saying he's the demon director, uh, but he, he, does not, he does not direct the demon program. He directs the D-Men program and is a professor at Phoenix Seminary. He's pastor of spiritual formation at his church, and uh, he, he's a good and faithful man. He does have those letters behind his name. He has so many degrees that on campus we call him the thermometer, right? But that's not what makes him... Uh, the guy who should come and speak to us today. He really exemplifies this verse that's been very dear to TBC for about 50 years when Paul said to Timothy, the things that you've learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, pass these on to faithful men who will then pass them on to others also. And he and his wife, Devon, in Tennessee and in North Carolina and now in Phoenix, Arizona, do just that, and they do it at seminary, but also they do it through their local church. He is a churchman, and he's going to teach us from the Word of God today. I'm really grateful he's here. Would you welcome Nathan Tarr, please? Thank you, brother. Good morning. Really is a joy to worship with you, and I would just like to continue to worship now as I invite you to turn your Bible on or open it up, and let's, let's meet together in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14. It's right that we as followers of Jesus lift our voice to worship Him, and it's right now as we open His Word together that we ask for the Spirit to come and give us wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. I don't know you. I, I love you already because I love your pastor and I hear about you a lot in class, all good things. I don't know where you're coming from this morning in terms of your walk with the Lord. I'm about to read some stories that some of you may know very well. You may have known them longer than I have been alive. And some of you may be hearing them for the first time this morning, and it doesn't really matter because uh, what is true is that there's more to see about the Lord Jesus than we have seen before. This is what happens when we study an infinitely beautiful person. doesn't matter how much we've seen about him, there's always more to see, and that's good news. So I'd like to read, I'll pray, and then we will begin to think this passage through together. Are you with me in Matthew 14? I'll begin reading in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, we'll come back to that in a minute, that's the death of John the Baptist. When Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it about Jesus' removal, they followed him on foot from the towns When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowd away to go into the villages and to buy food for themselves. 
But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men beside women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side after he had dismissed the crowds, or while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind... He was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, your book is open, and so we ask now that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would teach us what we do not know, you would give to us what we do not have, and you would make us what we are not yet, namely more and more into the image of your beautiful Son, in whose name we pray and who has and deserves all the affection of our hearts. Amen. Amen. When I titled this uh, message, What a Savior, uh, the idea is that I'm trying to capture in that title, this is the response of the hearts of those who see Jesus for who he is. This is how you respond when you behold Jesus. You say things like, there's no one like this man. You say things like, there's no one like him. What a savior. And I think that's appropriate to bring to the forefront of our attention as we begin this text today because Christians are people who worship Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you are just kicking the tires on Christianity. Like, what is this whole Christian thing about anyway? And I want you to know that at its heart of hearts, Christianity or Christians are those who worship the Lord Jesus. Yes, we obey him. Yes, we respect him. We give him honor. Yes, we imitate him. We try to follow the example of his life with our own. But 
What Christians are at heart is more than all of those things, though we do those things. Christians are those who worship Jesus. He is our life. He is our Lord. He is our king. He is our shepherd. He is our provider. He is our source. He is our good. He is our treasure. We worship him. And immediately as I say that, I just want to remind you that there are two ways in which we can worship him. We can worship him for what he does for us, and we can worship him for who he is for us. We're going to see two ways of worshiping Jesus in this passage. Uh, The first way is like the crowds and like King Herod and like so many people who come into the presence of Jesus in the, in the gospels, even in some ways the disciples themselves when they first begin, all they have eyes to see is what Jesus can do. And we're going to see four amazing miracles that are worth marveling at in this text. And yet I want to call you to move past the crowd marveling at a miracle worker, past Herod, who right there in chapter 14 and verse 2 is is astonished at the the mighty works Jesus is doing and the amazing things Jesus is saying. Uh, He thinks maybe John the Baptist has come back from the dead and that's how we could explain what he sees going on in Jesus' life. I want to invite you to move past marveling merely at what you hear Jesus say or what you see Jesus do and begin to worship him for who you see him to be. As God the Son, the Savior of the world, as the good shepherd of the sheep. There is a kind of marveling that does no honor to Jesus and is of no value to you. So you hear what I'm saying, right? That Christians are those who worship Jesus, and yet there's a kind of worshiping that we see in the text that we see around us in our world today that does not honor him for who he really is, and it's the kind of worshiping that takes Jesus like a tool into your belt because he's kind of handy in some tight spots to help you accomplish the goal that you already have for your life. I would love some help with my marriage. I would love some help with my job. I would love some help with my kids. I would love some help with this tough decision that I have to make. And if you're telling me that Jesus can give me some help with those things, I'll take a little bit of Jesus. I'll say whatever you want me to say about Jesus. Just, I just need some help. I already, I already know the path that I've chosen. I know the way that I want to walk on, and I'm just looking for some ways to optimize. We like to optimize these days, don't we? If Jesus can help me optimize my life, then give me a little bit of Jesus. That kind of honor or marvel or worship does no true honor to Christ because it takes him as a tool to serve the direction of your life, and that's not who he is. He's not a tool to be used by you to help you further down the road you've chosen for yourself. He is the Lord over your life. And he will be worshipped if he's to be worshipped rightly and fully and in a way that does honor to him as God the Son and as the Savior of the world. And that's what we see at the end of our text in verse 33 when the disciples finally have eyes to see who he is. They're on their knees, as it were, in the boat on a sea that has just recently grown very calm And they confess, truly, you are the Son of God. That's where I want us to go. By the end of our time together this morning, that's where I'd like us to be, by the grace of God. We would have moved from the crowds and the King Herod, who is fine to 
take a little bit of Jesus on board if he'll help get us where we want to go to the place of open-handed surrender of anything of our own plans, of our own wisdom, of our own designs and say, all I want, all I need, all I know is Jesus, you are my life. You are my hope. You're my peace. You're my strength. You're my joy. I'm here for you. That is the kind of worship that does honor to Christ. So let's see if we can get there by walking through four miracles in Matthew chapter 14. Four miracles to give us eyes to see Jesus in a way that brings us to worship. You ready? You may want to leave your Bible open because I'll just periodically drop, try to drop your eyes down so that you see what I'm looking at as we move through briefly uh, this text. We'll start then in verse 13. John the Baptist, uh, verse 12, has just told us that Jesus' cousin, his friend, his forerunner, the one who went before him to prepare his way, has just been killed by, the king, by king Herod. And so he takes, in verse 13, he takes his disciples away to a desolate place to mourn, to be restored and to be comforted uh, in their loss. But you see that they don't get this time together uh, because the end of the verse shows us a great crowd following him. A great crowd. Now, where did this crowd come from? Uh, as we work our way through Matthew's gospel, we, we see it growing as Jesus ministers and moves about. Uh, you don't have to flip here. I'll just give you a couple of the highlights if you want to listen. Uh, here's where the crowd came from. Matthew 8 verse 1 tells us that they heard Jesus teach, and when they heard his words, they experienced something unlike anything that they, that they knew when their religious leaders taught. They heard reality in his words. They tasted eternity in his words. It's like they would say to themselves, when our religious leaders teach, it's like a fog machine comes on. And I suppose it's true because we pay them to, to know what they're talking about, but I can't for the life of me figure out what this has to do with anything. It's, it's, it's abstract, it's ethereal, it's disconnected from real life. I don't even see them living it out in their own lives. It's getting foggy in here when they talk about who God is and what he's like. But when this rabbi from Nazareth speaks, it's not like that at all. It's like all the, the cloud and the fog blows away and it's like this, this hand reaches out of his mouth and grabs me around the heart and begins to draw me in to the character of the God of Israel. There's nobody that teaches like Jesus. There's nobody that talks like him about the things of God. When the word of God reveals God to the human heart, we're drawn that's what they're experiencing. So they follow after him. And then in 8 and 9 and 12, Jesus doesn't just talk the talk. He walks the walk and he begins to demonstrate with his miracles the, the character and the power, the kind of God that he's been talking about. So he talks about a God who is forgiving, who's merciful, who's kind, who keeps his promises, who breaks in in power. And then he begins to heal lepers and raise up paralytics and restore a man with a withered hand and he raises up a dead girl to life and the crowd is just watching with their eyes wide open and their jaws on the ground and they're like, I don't hear anybody talking like this man and I don't see anybody working like this man. Like, where did this guy come from? There's nobody like this. And they follow him. Matthew 12, verse 15, summarizes it like this. Many, many followed him 
and he healed them all. So they're tasting and seeing something in Jesus that they haven't seen anywhere else. Nobody talks like him, nobody heals like him, they marvel at him, they follow him. Now, in Matthew 14 and verse 19, Jesus has been trying to get away, but the crowds follow him. And I just, this isn't the point, but I just want to show you because it, it, it convicts me personally and it's very encouraging at the same time. It says he has compassion on them. You see that? He had compassion on them. He's trying to get away from them. <laughs> he's suffering the loss of John the Baptist. He's trying to minister to his disciples and he sees the crowd who won't leave him and he has compassion on them. I will confess to you that I am often at my worst when I'm interrupted, especially when I'm interrupted by the very people that I'm trying to get away from, especially when they're all my children. (laughs) And I try to see how many doors I can put between me and my kids so I can have my quiet time and meditate on things like the fruit of the Spirit, joy and peace and patience in my life. (laughs) And I feel like I've gotten somewhere good in God, and then one of the five will wiggle in somehow and all the patience goes away all the compassion goes away I was trying to get away from you to be with God and here you are and suddenly I'm not like Jesus I don't see them and have compassion on them and I just want you to see this is how our Lord is like when we come into his presence again he has compassion on us And he receives us. In fact, he would say, I came here for people just like you. In desperate need, over and over again. In Mark chapter 6, when Mark tells us this story, he says that Jesus saw them to be like sheep without a shepherd. That's the kind of compassion he has. Like, yeah, that's who I am. I'm the shepherd. That's who you are. You're a sheep. He has compassion on them. He says he, he... taught them with words of authority, and he healed them with his works of power. And then right here, he fed them all. He fed them all in the wilderness. 5,000 men throw in wives and children, 20,000 people in the wilderness with five loaves and two fishes, and Jesus fed them all, and not with like communion. Like they were satisfied, you know what I'm saying? Like they had enough bread and fish to eat their fill and 12 baskets full left over. All right? This is an amazing man. Are you tracking with what I'm saying? If you know your Bible, if these people knew their Bible, which they did, dots would start to connect in their head. The people of God, a crowd of the people of God in the wilderness and, and someone is providing miracle bread from heaven. Where have I seen this story before? Right? This is like Moses-level miracle that Jesus is doing, providing bread in the wilderness. Verse 20, they all eat, they're all satisfied. There's nobody like Jesus. That's miracle number one. You still with me? Did I say bread and y'all are already at lunch? <laughs> number two, verse 22, after after lunch, right, after dinner, Jesus sends his disciples back across the lake while he goes on now to pray to his father. Verse 24, this strong wind has come up opposing them. It says it's, it's uh, against them. And they, these fishermen, though they are, they know their way around boats and water, but they're being beaten by the waves. Verse 25, Jesus sees their struggle and comes to them walking on the water. 
Except he doesn't say that in verse 25, does it? Are you looking at it? What does it say? Walking on the, the sea. Now that is interesting to me because this body of water is not a sea. It's manifestly a lake. Have you been there? Has anybody seen this body of water? It's a lake. And yet Matthew calls it a sea, not because he's confused about where he was and he forgot in his, in his uh, writing of the gospel, but he's making a point, namely that the sea in the Bible is a picture of chaos. The sea is a picture of the forces of evil that heave and pitch and tear and rend God's peaceful rule. Picture like a boat that gets stuck on a sandbar and then gets battered to pieces by the tides and the current and the waves. That's what the forces of disintegration are trying to bring about in God's good creation. That's what the sea stands for very often in Scripture, this this force that's arrayed powerfully against God's rule. So this is why, for example, in the book of Revelation, John says, I saw no sea there. It doesn't mean that there's not any water in the new heavens or the new earth. It means that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and his lordship will be perfectly exercised over everything that he's made. There's no sea there. You following with me? There actually is one sea. Do you remember where it is? In the new heavens and the new earth, John sees at the foot of the one who sits on the throne, there is a sea. And do you remember how it's described? As a sea of glass, perfectly docile, underneath the dominion of the one who sits on the throne. No more chaos, no more disintegration. We get a little bit of a a glimpse of that future here as Jesus walks out on the waves and he quiets them. It's as if he is striding out on his adversary, putting his feet on his adversary's head, exercising his lordship, not just on the land, but on the sea. I made it all. I rule it all. Anywhere I go, not only must my enemies calm down, they actually must serve me. He's like stepping on the escalator in the airport that takes the sea actually has to take him out to where he wants to go to the disciples' boat. Well, I think that's pretty amazing. Are you with me? Like the the enemy is serving the king. The wind and the waves are against the disciples. They can't go, but they have to take Jesus there where he wants to go to comfort his disciples in the boat, except they're not comforted at all, are they? Verse 26, they're terrified. They're terrified because the sea is scary, and now here comes one. Who is it? I can't see, but it's somebody that is scary to the sea, right? If if I am terrified of the sea and the sea is terrified of whoever's coming, this is not good news. What kind of power does it take to walk on the sea? So in verse 27, Jesus answers their fear with a word of comfort. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Oh, it's Jesus. That changes everything. That changes everything. It's the one who can serve me with bread in the wilderness. He's the same one who can subdue the forces of chaos that threaten my life. Any of you need either of those first two miracles in your life this morning? I need miraculous provision. 
I have forces of, th- of chaos threatening disintegration in my life. I need someone who can speak peace. Jesus is that man. Watch what Peter does in verse 28 then. He's marveling at the amazing man that Jesus is. It makes him want to be like Jesus, makes him want to be with Jesus, even if Jesus is on the water. So he says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. I know this is obvious, but I'll just remind you that Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Right? Jesus is the point of the Bible. Matthew 14, Matthew's Gospel, the New Testament, the Bible. Jesus is the hero, not Peter. So keep your eyes on Jesus, okay? Jesus is the point of the story. It's, it's popular to read this story and, and hear questions like, I wonder if I have what it takes to be like Peter. I wonder if I would have the, the courage to get out of the boat. Well, I'm not sure that what Peter does here is a good example. I'm not sure that what Peter ever does is a good example. <laughs> I won't press this too hard, but I do think it should mean something that Jesus never actually asks him to come. Peter kind of invites himself out on the water. And in verse 31, when Jesus says, why did you doubt, Peter? I, I just wonder if he's not responding only to Peter getting out on the water and then looking at the waves and beginning to sink, but Peter responding when Jesus says, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. Peter's response is, Lord, if it is you. And I wonder if Jesus is now speaking to that heart posture as well to say, why did you doubt? In either case, Peter ends up on the water and he sees the storm and he grows afraid and he does in that moment what is exactly right as he begins to sink. He cries out, Lord, save me. He cries out to Jesus for salvation. And it says, Jesus, immediately. I love this. You, you know, if you've read Mark's gospel, Mark loves the word immediately. Things are always happening like immediately in Mark's gospel, but not as much in Matthew. Matthew's kind of a little more relaxed, but not here. He wants to make the point that in the very moment Peter begins to sink, you see the heart of Jesus. You see the, the power and the deliverance of Jesus as he doesn't kind of pause for dramatic effect you know, doesn't kind of like wait for it to sink in a little bit. Like I told you, right? It says immediately as Peter cries out, Jesus reaches out his strong right, right arm, which is not short that it may not save and draws Peter up out of the water and saves him. So 12 disciples learned the same lesson. Jesus is an amazing man. He serves you with bread in the wilderness. He subdues the forces of chaos that threaten your life. He can save you from being overwhelmed by the waves. 11 disciples learn it dry. One disciple learns it wet, but everyone learns the same lesson. Because number four, miracle number four, Peter doesn't, or Jesus doesn't just save Peter. Verse 32 tells us, when Jesus steps into the boat, the storm stops. John tells us in chapter 6 of his gospel, he tells this story, and he says that as soon as Jesus enters the boat, they arrived at their destination. Isn't that amazing? 
We see them there. They're fighting the storm. It says they're a long way from land. They're in the middle of the lake. Jesus comes to them. He steps into the boat and immediately, miraculously, they reach their desired haven, their home. It's almost as if the presence of Jesus stepping into the boat is home stepping into the boat with them. He is their place of peace and strength and comfort. He is their desired haven. He is their rest, and he is now with them in the boat. So, what does Matthew 14 show us about Jesus? Much to marvel at. We see a man who can serve our daily needs, satisfy us with bread in the wilderness. We see a man who can subdue the forces of chaos that threaten to overwhelm us and rip us apart. We see a man who can save us and draw us up when all human hope is lost. We see a man who can secure us in our desired haven and grant us, in in the place of anxiety, peace. We watch these miraculous signs unfold one after the other across the gospel, and we conclude with the crowd, there's nobody like Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that if that is all we see and that is where we stop in our study of Matthew 14, we have badly missed the point. We've missed the point. Yes, it's true, Jesus did and can do all of those things, but what does that mean? You have kids, you have grandkids, you have a dog, you know what it means to point to something. Like, look at that beautiful flower. Look at that airplane and see your dog fixate on your finger. Have you ever done this to your dog? Try it this afternoon. You'll see it works. They don't look at what you're pointing at, right? They they only fixate on your finger. They miss the point because they're fixated on the pointer. We read the Bible like that a lot. Our, Our attention is distracted by the pointer and we never look beyond it to consider the point. These miracles are signs. They are pointers to what we really and most deeply need and who Jesus really and most deeply is. Which means if we read these miracles and only see Jesus as a handy tool that we can bring on board for a free lunch, or a little help with our anxiety issues or our relationship issues or our financial issues, he can draw us up out of those chaos and struggle, we will not worship him as he is worthy of. So I want to rewind the tape again. We've got 10 minutes. Rewind the tape of this chapter. Some of you will know what it means to be kind. Please rewind. You can explain it to the 30-year-olds who are sitting next to you. I want to rewind Matthew 14 and try to play it through again and this time look beyond the pointer to the point and see who Jesus is as he stands before us in the witness of this word. So back in verse 13, we remember that the, 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 the story begins with John the Baptist being beheaded. So the truth about Jesus begins with the testimony of John the Baptist. And we have heard from John in this gospel way back in chapter 3, that John's testimony to Jesus sounds like this, prepare the way for the Lord. Right? This is who Jesus is. 
the long-promised Messiah, the God of Israel, in fact, come down to visit his people with deliverance and salvation, prepare the way for the Lord. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if, if you're just coming out for a free lunch, or if you're coming out to see how you can plug Jesus in to optimize your life, or if you want to use Jesus as a way to like increase your ability to influence on social media, you're not dealing with the real Jesus, and you're not honoring him for who he really is. He's come to rule you as your Lord, and he's come to deliver you as your Savior. You will have him as Savior and Lord, or you will not have him, because that's who he is. This is John the Baptist in his camel hair and locust and wild honey best as he preaches in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. The good news, of course, is that if you do turn to Jesus for deliverance, if you do surrender your life to him, you will find your sins forgiven and you will find yourself receiving the gift of life indeed. I came that they might have life and have it to the full. That, in fact, that salvation, I think, is the true table that Jesus spreads for the 5,000 in the wilderness. Do you know this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels? The feeding of the 5,000? And I think one of the reasons that this is so is because it is such a crucial pointer, sign of who Jesus is as the bread of life, as the one better than Moses, who came not just to lead you out of Egypt, feed you with miracle bread in the wilderness, and then stop short of getting you into the promised land, but the one who came to lead you out of the bondage and darkness to sin, sustain you with his own life into the presence of God forever with great joy. That's who Jesus is. There's no one like that Jesus. As the good shepherd of the sheep then, he provides for our deepest and truest need. He offers his broken body and his spilled blood on the cross to cover our sin, to turn away the wrath of God, and to open up a door to everlasting life. Jesus himself is the banquet of salvation that he spreads in the wilderness. In verse 25, when Jesus walks out on the sea, He's saying something that his disciples surely would have recognized since they knew their Bibles. They loved their Old Testament, as we call it. He is making a claim not just to be the savior of the world, like someone that God uses in a mighty way. No, no. He's making the claim to be God himself. I'll show you three quick ways I think we're supposed to see this. First, in the Old Testament... You can jot down Job 9, 8 if you'd like and look at it later. It is the God of Israel, Yahweh himself, who says, Yahweh alone, or the God of heaven alone, tramples the waves of the sea. This is what the Old Testament says about the God of Israel. Yahweh alone tramples the waves of the sea. But wait a minute. If Yahweh alone tramples the waves of the sea, and here comes Jesus of Nazareth walking on the waves of the sea, what are we supposed to conclude? What are we being shown about who Jesus is, but that he is one with the God of Israel, who alone walks on the waves of the sea? 
Number two, in Mark's version of the story, we read that Jesus intended to pass them by. Have you ever stumbled at that just a little bit? Like what kind of a practical joke is that, right? As if Jesus is trying to like tiptoe by and see how far he, like how close can I get to the boat without them seeing that I'm here? I'm intending to pass them by and kind of wave as I, as I go by and hope to see you on the other side. I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think what's going on is that we are seeing the intention of the Lord to reveal his glory to his people. Do you remember in Exodus 33 when Moses prays that prayer, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord says, you, nobody can see me face to face and live, and so here's what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, I'll cover you over with my hand, I'll cause all my glory to pass before you, and then you can look out and see my back. Do you remember that? I will pass you by, and then you can see my back as I cover you over with my hand. But look at this. Rather than being hidden in the cleft of the rock and covered over with the hand to see the back, these disciples... Behold the glory of God face to face as he gets into the boat with them. He intends to pass them by, meaning he intends to reveal his glory to them, and he steps into the boat face to face. We see the same truth in verse 27 in Jesus' words of comfort to his terrified disciples. Take heart, it is I, or very literally, I am. Take heart. I am. He's taking to himself the divine name that God gave to Moses at the bush, the burning bush in Exodus 3 when Moses says, who shall I tell them sent me to you? And God says from the bush, tell them I am has sent me to you. And Jesus now takes that divine name to himself. So at least these three ways, walking on the sea as only God can do, intending to reveal the glory of God to them face to face in his person and taking to himself the divine name, at least in these ways, Jesus is making the point, I am more than a miracle worker. I am more than a man that God uses to do good to his people. I am God himself come in the flesh to save and to provide the salvation, the deliverance that my people desperately need. That's what we mean when we say there's no one like Jesus. Finally, when Peter is sinking in the waves and Jesus draws him up out of the water, we are seeing a picture of salvation from a threat that is greater than any storm. This storm is real. It's a historical storm. It's a problem for the disciples, but it's also just a picture of a far greater problem that they face apart from Christ. Jonah describes his deliverance as being drawn up out of deep waters. The psalmist in Psalm 69 cries out, save me, this, he's talking about his circumstances, not, not his water, save me for the waters have come up to my neck. Peter, in his letter, think, maybe thinking about this very moment as he sinks into the waves, he describes the wrath of God like a flood that comes in to overwhelm the sinner to utter destruction. This is, a, this is the imagery that the scripture often uses to talk about the flood of the wrath of God coming and breaking against uncovered sin. 
So the point here, again, is not, do you have faith like Peter to get out of the boat? No, the point here is more like, when you find yourself sinking under the greatest threat to your life, namely the wrath of God that is breaking out against you because you are a sinner and you do sin and your sins are uncovered in the dishonor that you have done to God, if even there you cry out, Lord, save me, even there and immediately Jesus Christ will draw you up out of those waters. He will deliver you. He will become an ark for you. He will become a strong tower and a sure salvation for you even there. Now look at verse 33. When the disciples saw this, when the disciples saw this, when they saw Jesus as the bread of everlasting life, not just yesterday's dinner, when they saw Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep who leads them through the valley and on the mountain, as we just sang, to life eternal, as they see him as the God of Israel keeping his promises, being true to his covenant, coming in the flesh to deal with the sin of his people, when they saw him demonstrate a mighty salvation and drawing them up out of the waters, when they looked beyond the signs and the pointers, and they beheld the point of the person of Jesus Christ. When they saw this, they worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Beloved, by God's help this morning, as we've opened this passage of Scripture, we have seen what they saw. We have seen this Jesus. And so I need to close by asking you, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do? You cannot see him like this and not respond. What will you do with him? Will you marvel at him superficially like, I'll take him on board and see how he can help? Or will you worship him for who he really is? I invite you this morning to come to Jesus. If you need the hunger of your soul satisfied, I want you to know on the authority of God's word, it is here for you this morning in Jesus. If you need the power of darkness crushed underneath your feet, that victory is here this morning in Jesus. If you need a strong salvation from the wrath of God because you become convicted of your sin and you know if you went to face him now, you would face him on your own with your sin uncovered by the blood of Christ. That salvation is here for you this morning in Jesus. If you need the true and everlasting peace that comes from knowing your circumstances don't determine your joy. They don't determine your destiny. Your your destiny, your joy, your hope, your peace is fixed and sure because it rests in the finished work of Christ. And everything God has begun in your life, he will bring to perfect completion. That confidence is here this morning for you in Jesus. Let me pray and let's go to him together. Lord, across this room, surely there are as many needs, desperate needs, as as there are brothers and sisters in these seats. And yet, your word reminds us, even shows us in Matthew 14, that of all the varied needs that are represented in this room, they all come together, they all coalesce in one deepest, truest need, and that is for Christ, for Jesus and for more of Jesus. And so we thank you this morning for what you have done for us in Christ. 
And we pray that you would open up our eyes now, even now, to behold him for who he really is and who he is for us. And would our hearts respond this morning by coming to him in faith and trusting that in him alone, those needs will be satisfied. May we come to Jesus. May we worship him. What a savior he is. We bless you in his mighty name. Amen.